for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. One is that working? There we go. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. And such a joy to be here. As John said, we've known each other for 20 or so years, he and Emily and I. Uh, So John, thanks for the invitation to be back. I love you. I love your family. And I love this church. As I look around the room, there's some of you that I've known for a while. Others of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet. Uh, But I pray for you often. Uh, Even on my drive on Sunday mornings as I'm driving from our house to our congregation in downtown Colorado Springs, I'm thinking about the churches that are already gathering at that time, and you're the church that most frequently comes to my mind uh, to pray for you as you're gathered together in Jesus' name here in this new beautiful space. This is my first time uh, in this building, which is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, As John said, um, and like many of you, I've known John since he was actually in high school, Uh, And I met him at a Friday night at Believer's Church back sometime probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then led a little small group with uh, Joe Mooberry that uh, that John was in. And then we lost touch for a bit and reconnected when I was John's Hebrew professor in seminary, which was John's least favorite experience of me, like in our whole relationship that season. He's like, I'm glad that one ended. Then we got a chance to be uh, co-workers at Asbury United Methodist Church here in town for a little bit uh, and then have continued our friendship here. And for, as many of you know, if you have old friends, uh, it simply means that uh, someone has learned to forgive someone else at a certain point in time. So John has forgiven me greatly, uh, which is why we're still friends, including that season where I called him Zach. Uh, I think to, to my like benefit in the middle of that I think we did meet like in the middle of a huge crowd and I think there was another metro student with him that was named Zach and so I think that's how that got stuck in my mind but on the other hand like I knew his brother Jacob and I knew his brother Joey and I should have picked up on the pattern right (laughs) I don't know why I went from Jacob to Joey like why Zach made more sense than John I'm just not good at discerning those things, I guess. But we made it through, and here we are, and getting to continue and actually finish up this series in Philippians this morning. Last week, John talked uh, with us about what it means to think big thoughts about God and how, in the midst of life, we actually spend time talking to God, not just thinking thoughts about God, but actually engaging Him in the midst of conversation. And that framework that Paul is talking about in this passage is seen thinking thoughts about God and praying to God as antidotes to anxiety and fear. Not the sole antidotes to those things. John talked a little bit last week that there are times that we need counseling, 
There's times that we need medicine. There are other things that we do for our mental health. And yet in this passage, as Paul is talking to the church in Philippi about the anxiety and the fear that they are facing individually and collectively, he says part of this whole antidote for the things that are causing them to worry is to think big thoughts about God and to pray. And in today's text, he continues talking about the life of the mind. What are the kinds of practices that Christians put in place that actually shape how we think? What are the kinds of things that the people of God always and everywhere have done that helps sort of with the life of the mind that we might be the people who love God not just with our hearts and not just with our strength, but actually love God with our minds? And he says in that passage that was read, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Paul tells us to think about these kinds of things, to let our minds go to these places. Here, Paul turns actually to the content of our thoughts, to the things that we think about. When I was in high school, there was one of my professors, Mr. Spriggs, he taught our government and sociology and psychology courses. And in the back of the room on the wall, he'd have us sit in a circle. And on the back of the room on a wall, which I could see every day in class, was this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that said, a man or a person becomes what they think about all day. And as a high school student, that was a terrifying thought. <laughs> as I'd sit down and see that quote sort of staring me in the face, panic would stricken me. It's like, what have I been thinking about today? <laughs> so I'm coming into this class. But that quote captures the sense that what we think about is actually formative for us. The things that fill our, our minds are actually things that shape us throughout the day, shape the ways that we actually go about our life. And so for Paul, our thought life is something that's critical for him. It's a critical thing for him to consider, and he charges the church to think in a particular direction, to think toward specific things, toward what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. This list is just a representative list of things. It's not an exhaustive list of the things like you can only think about this, but it's a representative list of things he's trying to get us to focus on. He summarizes it up at the end with the the two broad categories, whatever is excellence or whatever is praiseworthy. In other words, whatever we recognize as a high moral good and whatever is commendable amongst the community, the thing that the people gather together and say, yes, that's that thing. He tells us to direct our minds in those ways, to what is moral and to what is commendable. We could say it this way, that Paul wants us as the people of God to focus our thoughts on virtuous things, to actually obsess over what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and what is lovely, to actually have our minds obsessing over those things. So when you think about that, what is it that comes to mind for you? If you think about those categories that he's playing out, is it the grace of God? Is it the faithfulness of a friend? Is it the sacrifice of a parent? 
Is it the kindness of a spouse? Is it the inspiration that you receive from a teacher or a coach? What are the things that come to mind? Is it the beauty of a place? And the feeling that you get when you step in there? Is it the rhythm of the game of baseball or the taste of ribs at Burnco? This is where my thought goes. What are those things? Paul uses this term think. It's one of his favorite verbs. He uses it 34 times in his letters. And it's actually a really interesting term because it's actually a mathematical or accounting term. So all of the nerds in the house, this is like the term for those of you who are like, see, accounting is biblical. It's right here in the midst of Paul. He's telling us to think like an accountant, to think, which might be terrifying to others. You're like, I'm an artist. I'm not an accountant. Please don't tell me to think that way. But he's saying that we should be thinking in some really deliberate, even methodic, and disciplined kinds of ways. But the truth is, is most of our minds are rather undisciplined. But if we think about our thoughts, they are scattered, they are random, they are unregulated. We see squirrels everywhere. And even the life that we have, it's a constant sort of distraction for us. If you think about the number of times that you'll get a notification on your phone, even in this time together. The number of things that sort of pop up, the number of distractions that are calling to our attention, the number of things that are just happening as we drive, or the images that come across our path as we're walking somewhere, the number of things, even in our own homes as we're going about our lives, the number of distractions that are around us. We live in a culture that actually trains our minds to be distracted. And in the midst of all of those distractions, we typically find ourselves anxious, that we're anxious about the things that are coming across. It's like, oh, I need to attend to this. If I don't answer that text right now, what is that, what is that going to communicate? Oh, if I don't take care of that to-do list, oh, if I don't get everything done that's on my calendar, oh, oh, here, there, oh, what about this? I should be praying about this thing and that thing, and this thing's going on with this friend. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves so scattered that anxiety and fear start rising inside of us. And Paul says... That what we have to work on is focusing our minds to have our thoughts be carefully formed, to curate specific patterns and ways of thinking. And this doesn't mean, Paul's, Paul's never telling us that we have to ignore difficult things. He's never saying that we have to pretend that hard things don't happen in our life. He's not saying that we just sort of, you know, press away everything about Afghanistan and everything about Haiti and everything about the pandemic or that we press away our own losses that we've experienced in our lives, or that we press away our hurts or our disappointments or the shame or guilt that we might feel something. We said, no, 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 it's, we learn how to direct those thoughts. And specifically, he says, we learn how to direct those thoughts to God in prayer. And the way that we pray is that we ask God to bring these virtues out of those situations. That we begin to think, okay, God, how is it that you might be bringing something lovely out of this situation? God, would you bring beauty into these ashes? Would you bring healing into this hurt? Would you bring forgiveness into this place of guilt and shame? Or would you in some way restore or resurrect what has been put to death? Where experiences of death abound, would you somehow blossom and cause life? to come about. 
the verb that he uses doesn't just mean, though, to calculate, but it actually has this sense to it to carefully evaluate what that is. He's not only concerned about what we think about, but actually how we think as well. To not just simply have thoughts going in, but to actually cultivate a way of thinking, a manner of thinking. He, he, he specifically challenges us to rethink everything in the light of Jesus. That everything that we think about actually becomes gospel-shaped in some way. This is the mission of this community, is to be renewed, reshaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And Paul says this is true for our, our minds as well. That our minds need to be shaped by the gospel. His prayer at the very beginning of the book, as he's praying for the Philippians, he says this. And this is my prayer. That your love may be abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. He connects the head and the heart. Your love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern, to think rightly, to think critically, to recognize goodness and truth and beauty in all of its right forms, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And even at the very center of his book, the center of his book is that beautiful hymn that he records about the life of Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and came down and took on the very nature of a servant. And he says right before that, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind, the same attitude, the same mindset that is in Christ Jesus, that the life of Jesus should actually in some way inform how we think about things. The word that he uses there is to have an attitude that is developed by careful reflection. A mindset that is about the careful reflection on the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. A life that is consumed in our minds about filtering things through the gospel. We don't just focus our thoughts on virtuous things, but we actually focus our thoughts through the gospel of Jesus. Paul wants Christ to be the template that we think through, the grid through which we evaluate something's true quality, to actually ask ourselves, well, is this what I'm thinking about? Is this actually good in light of the gospel? Is this actually just in light of Jesus? Is this actually beautiful and lovely in light of the God revealed in the scriptures? Is this actually those things? Or do I think it is good or true or right or lovely or beautiful because of some other story that I've inherited that I have lived out of? In the city of Philippi, as you know, the city that Paul is writing this letter to, it was a Roman colony. It was actually founded by Rome and specifically sort of populated with veterans of the Roman military. That as they were reaching this place of retirement, they had fought their fight, they had lived through all of these uh, wars, then the emperor is giving them land in this town of Philippi and settling them there. So this is a town that is proud of the empire and it's proud of its citizenship. And so it's no mistake that over and over and over again that Paul is actually taking the language of Roman citizenship and he's filtering it through the gospel. They have heard one version of, what, of a virtuous life from the emperor and they have been rewarded for living that kind of virtuous life by being given land in and around Philippi. 
And Paul comes in and he takes and he filters it all through the gospel. And he redirects their allegiance from the emperor to Jesus, from the empire to the kingdom. He filters it through. For us, we tend to actually just so many places connect our virtues that we learn in our culture and we have a tendency to just baptize them with the gospel rather than allow the gospel to actually reshape those things. In our culture, we oftentimes talk about power and prosperity being ultimate ends and good, goods in themselves. But this is sort of what our dream is, is to go to work and to earn something and then to enjoy it. That power and prosperity are ultimately things that we earn and then things that are meant for our enjoyment. And we filter that through the gospel that we recognize that power was always meant to serve and that prosperity was always meant to be shared. The gospel filters out our thoughts and says, no, 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 no. This is actually a higher good. This is what this is intended to go toward. Paul wants us to think our whole lives through the gospel. Why is he so concerned about this, though? Why is this such a big deal for Paul? I think it's because Paul knows ultimately that what happens in our minds, it gets lived, lived out in our lives. That what is happening in here actually gets lived out in some way that our meditations become embodied in our actions. That they actually get lived out. And so Paul then takes this really interesting turn and goes from talking about the life of our mind to talking about the people in our lives. He makes this really quick shift. I think because Paul recognizes that when we're talking about this kind of way of living, that we need guides. That we actually need people to teach us how to think. To how to think differently, how to focus on the gospel and how to filter our, our thoughts through this lens. That we need people that we can then pattern our lives after. He says this, he says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, whatever it is that you've seen that is good and true and right and lovely and beautiful, whatever it is that you have heard and received and learned or seen in me, put it into practice. Now, there's a lot of people that read this passage from Paul and are like, man, Paul, that's bold. It feels a bit prideful. Like, really, Paul? Like, you're setting yourself up as an example here. But Paul recognizes that we actually all need examples in our lives. So he does the same thing with Timothy. He does the same thing with Epaphroditus earlier in the letter. He actually does it with anyone that lives the Jesus way of life. He says in Philippians 3.17, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He's not saying he's the only model, but he's saying that there should be in a community of Christ followers, people whose lives that we look at and say, I can pattern my life after theirs. That there's something about the way that they live that I want to emulate. See, Paul knows that the gospel is inherited and that the faith is imitated. The gospel is something that we inherit and the way of Jesus is something that we learn through imitation, through being around others who live this life out and then learning how to live that way. We don't know the gospel, we receive it. We don't know how to think, we learn how to think. We don't know how to live, instead we watch and then we imitate. Just like our kids do. 
This is how they learn how to live in this world, and it's how we learn to live in the new world of Jesus, by watching and imitating, by following faithful models, looking to those that are around us like, that is a faithful life. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to model my life after that. This is actually becoming an increasingly radical ideal in our, in our, in our culture. In our culture, this idea of patterning our life after somebody else is increasingly countercultural. That in our culture, we are told that the best thing that we can do is to become fully ourselves. To you be you, and you do you, and I'll be me, and I'll do me. And if we actually kind of live in that sort of way, it will actually be the best for everyone that we're encouraged that what we should do is live a life that is self-defined and self-expressed, that really what we should do is chart our own course. And the scriptures come in and say that's actually not how the life of faith works. That instead, we're called to look at the lives of people that are around us, the people that have come before us, the faithful lives of the community, and we're just to watch and observe and to imitate and put in practice so that we might become more and more like Christ. We might become more and more like him. We're all called to a life of apprenticeship, of learning from others, of learning from one another. This is why the apprentice groups matter so much. It's gathering together in groups for friendship and formation. Not just for friendship, but friendship and formation. Recognize that we want people around us whose lives then we can then learn from. There was a man named Ken Quinnis who when I was a sophomore in high school and my family's life was falling apart, my dad was moving out, everything was kind of unraveling in my family home, and I walked up to Ken Quinnis's house. Ken was my neighbor. He was my boss at the supermarket that I worked at in my hometown and my ex-girlfriend's dad just to, you know, like make things more complicated. And I, I walked up to Ken's house feeling unsettled, feeling afraid, terrified, not knowing what life was going to look like. And I sat down at his kitchen table and Ken pulled out a Bible and Ken's the first person who shared Jesus with me. I inherited the gospel from my ex-girlfriend's dad and manager at Bill's Family Foods. The gospel's inherited. I got a taste for pastoral ministry from a woman named Tammy Perry, who was the first youth pastor that I got a chance to know as my friends invited me to go to this church, and I began to see Tammy's life put on display. She showed me what servant leadership looked like. She showed me what it looked like to love people. All of a sudden, she sparked in me an imagination that the Lord sort of then lit and said, that's the kind of life that I want to I be, be Tammy when I grow up. When I came to college at ORU and found myself kind of in this place of being single and in my late teens and early 20s and beginning to think about dating and marriage and family and not having a clue what any of those things actually should look like because the models that I had had in my home were not models that I wanted to pattern my life after. It was people named Mark and Casey Steele that invited me into their home and I spent sometimes two, three nights a week over at their house watching them do married life, watching them parent, helping them with the dishes, helping them put kids to bed. And now when I look at my family, so much of the way that we live out our life together is because I patterned myself off of a model 
learning how to live. When, jo- when John and I were in that little uh, small group together with a bunch of other uh, folks from Metro Christian Academy, it was co-led by a guy named Joe Muberry. Joe was in his 50s or 60s at the time. I, he may have been younger than I. He just seemed really old at the time. Um, you know how that is? Like, you kind of look at people and you're like, man, I'm in my 40s now, and I, I don't feel as old as I thought 40-year-olds were. So I'm sure Joe was probably in his 40s, and I thought he was in his 60s. Uh, but there was something about looking at Joe's life and going, here's Joe in the second half of life, and how is he living when he's living his life for the sake of other people? And going, I, I want that life. I, I want to come to my 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and not just play golf. I want to in some way invest my life in other people the way that Joe did. We all need faithful models to follow. We need people that we can emulate. And the truth is, is we also need to become people who others can emulate. That this is the call of a community of people formed in the image and likeness of Jesus to pattern our lives after one another and to allow our lives to become a pattern for others to follow. Paul concludes this passage this way. He says, And the peace, the God of peace, will be with you. He goes from talking about our minds to then talking about people that we pattern our lives after. And then he says, And the God of peace will be with you. It's not the first time he's mentioned peace. And it's not the first time he's mentioned presence. Peace and presence come up several times in letters, but they come up right here in a little bit of a cluster. Just a few verses earlier, Philippians 4, 5, says the Lord is near. That the Lord is near. Just a little bit later, he says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace and presence actually bracket this entire section. That is, he's talking about our thought life and he's talking about the way that we live this out. It's bracketed in these conversations about peace and about presence. I think what Paul's trying to get us to recognize is actually through the practices of prayer and reflection and imitation, we become aware of the presence of God that envelops us. That it's bracketed in this way because this is how our lives are. Our lives are bracketed, they're enveloped, they are in some way framed by the presence of God. And these practices, actually all Christian practices, what they're designed to do is they're designed to awaken us to the presence of God. Not to sort of cause the presence of God to happen, but to awaken us to the fact that God is near, that he's here, that he is with us, and to cause us to become more aware of his presence. Have you ever bought like a new car? Or maybe a new car to you, a used car? And you go through all of that process of sort of researching the car and figuring out what year and make and model that you want to get. And you go through and you have all of this sort of focused attention. You're reading all the consumer reports things and you're going to the different dealerships and you're looking at these cars and you're driving around and then you buy it and you're like, oh my gosh, everybody owns this car. You start seeing it everywhere. I talked to my daughter, Cora, my 12-year-old, about Teslas the other day. It was like a year ago. And she just thought, like, these, these cars are so cool. I pointed one out to her. And now everywhere we're driving, she's like, Dad, there's a Tesla. Dad, there's a Tesla. I'm like, babe, you're never going to get a Tesla. I'm sorry. Like, this is just, this is just not going to be the life that you live, is that you're going to have one of these cars. But because she became aware of them, she started seeing them everywhere. 
I think this is what practices of a faith are meant to do. Is they're supposed to train us in such a way to become aware of the presence of God all around us. The practices themselves don't generate presence. The practices themselves don't generate peace. They help us to recognize the presence of God who is peace. To actually open our eyes to the one who is always with us. Peace comes through the presence of the God of peace. And these practices usher us more deeply into the inexplicable and even nonsensical peace of God. The peace that passes understanding that doesn't make sense. This is a pretty remarkable thing for Paul to say. If you think about Paul's life, he's writing this letter from prison. How can he speak about the peace of God in prison? How can he speak about the peace of God in the situation that he finds himself in? Or even the church that he's writing to as they are sort of creating this colony of heaven in the midst of the Roman Empire and experiencing all the persecution that they are experiencing. How is it that he can talk about peace to them? See, for us, we often define peace as an absence. Peace is the absence of conflict. Peace is the absence of war. Peace is the absence of trouble. Peace is the absence of sound. Peace is the absence of things that are overwhelming us in some way. But when the scriptures talk about peace, they always talk about peace as presence, not as absence. Peace is associated in the scriptures with the presence of God. The peace is not found in the absence of things. Peace is found in the presence of the God who loves us. Peace is found in the presence of the God who is near, who's an ever-present help, even in times of trouble. See, for Paul and for us, peace is possible because God is near. The practices that we give ourselves to, whether it's prayer, whether it's intentional reflection, whether it's an imitated sort of life, a well-modeled life, these things usher us in more deeply to an awareness of the presence of God. And because God is near, peace is possible. It's actually what is true for us at the table as well. Why the people of God for thousands of years have centered their services around the Eucharist. Because it's in the Eucharist that we're aware, we become aware of Christ's presence with us. And because he is near, peace is possible for us. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.